0: Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick-Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. I'm really excited to share with you this interview I did recently with Judith Ann Still, who happens to be the daughter of the great African-American composer, William Grant Still. William Grant Still was one of the great pioneering black composers of the 20th century in America not only paving the way for black musicians and composers to participate and excel in classical music in America, but he was also involved in the contemporary uh, music scene, the popular music scene in the 1920s and even the 1910s. Uh, The interview goes into a lot of really interesting behind the scenes uh, compositional practices, uh, how William Grant Still Uh, related to his family, a lot of the struggles he went through, uh, and ultimately I think you'll find this is an incredibly redeeming story, and a story of someone with such courage, fortitude, and just perseverance, and I'm just really excited to bring it to you. One of the recordings that I'll be using, uh, we are able to use courtesy of Bridge Records and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, that comes from william grant Still's symphony number no. one the afro-american symphony so here's the interview i hope you enjoy it I am here with Judith Ann Still, the daughter of the late composer William Grant Still. Judith, it's such an honor to be speaking with you today, and I just wanted to start out with asking you about William Grant Still, your father, said that he would use his talent to serve God with humble thanks to God, almost like kind of like J.S. Bach used to say Uh, God, the source of all inspiration. Can you talk about the role of religion or spirituality in your father's life or your family's life coming up?
1: My father's connection with the creator was very strong and and throughout his life. He didn't uh, ever join a church after he grew up. But he became interested in metaphysical things as well, and he would have very spectacular dreams in which high representatives of the creator would uh, talk to him about uh, important things in uh, in creation and uh, give him inspiration.
0: Can you expand a little bit on the dreams? Because I know that... um he would use his dreams. He would kind of go into dreams. And uh, like the play, the playwright Carlton Moss said, um, that's William Grant still would sit there. He had the habit of tapping his foot. He never talked about anything, but that music. I got the impression that when he left, wherever he went, he'd sit down and mess with that music. He was always off in another world. Did you have any experiences of him? Um, invoking dreams or talking about dreams or translating dreams into his music?
1: Oh, yes. And sometimes in while sleeping, he would, as he said, get the theme for the piece he was about to begin working on. Uh, a lot of his creative work occurred while he was asleep. Uh, and his dreams were of all types, directive dreams uh, to tell him how to avoid Uh, opposition. For example, he dreamed that someone had poisoned his food and they found out it was, they opened the refrigerator and found out it was true. Uh, So he was prevented from being murdered actually by racists and others, uh, through his dreams. And then of course his dreams would lead him towards inspiration and, uh, clarify certain difficulties that he was having with an arrangement or whatever he was doing.
0: So in his compositional process, would you say that he essentially worked throughout the day or during the night, or did you ever interrupt him when he was composing or was that forbidden?
1: Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) I was always doing whatever it is I wanted to do. I was kind of also on a, on a different tack. And, uh, but he, he organized his day in, in the morning from, uh, morning until noon he would compose and after lunch my mother would play over whatever part of the score that was uh, that she could play on the piano for him and then uh, in the afternoon he would work in the garden or do whatever repair work was required around the house. He, He had a Place for everything and then everything in its place.
0: So so your mother, Verna, um, so she was a pianist as well. Can you talk about that relationship uh, and growing up with two musicians? Did was there any encouragement for you and your siblings to go into music?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't work. And uh <laughs> no, my my mother was trying to teach me to play the piano. And I was not interested, and my father happened by the room and heard what was going on, and he said, uh, forget it, Berna. she's going to write. She's not going to be a musician. I wrote my first short story when I was nine, which I guess spoke to the fact that that's what I might do later on. My father was kind of intuitive about about uh, what what people were really about,
0: William Grant still has crossed paths with many other of the great musicians, you know, from W.C. Handy, uh, who he worked with significantly, Paul Whiteman, Artie Shaw, and to the classical big names of the 20th century, like Edgar Varese to George Chadwick and and Will's good friend, Howard Hanson. Can you talk about any kind of influences that you remember being particularly strong? for your father or any relationships that he forged that meant the most to him?
1: Oh yeah. Well, I think Handy was valuable to him for introducing him to, uh, the early jazz music and, um, uh, soul music and, uh, 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 Negro music from, from the ground up. And the blues was especially a revelation to my father because, uh, Growing up in Little Rock, he had not heard the blues. So when he heard the blues, he realized that he could do something with that. And Veraz was valuable to him for helping him to get away from the conservatory ideas that music should be written in the Baroque vein or in the European vein. But my father wanted to start a truly American music, so he realized that this was his Emancipation Proclamation from doing it the same old way.
0: This is something I find about about William Grant Still's um, music most uh, strikingly, most profoundly. Um, Antonin Dvorak, you know, came to America in the 1890s and talked about how. Afro-American music spirituals would be the future of American music and that of the world. And to me, your father is the first composer who truly assimilates the blues, spiritual music, folk music. He merges that with the European style, with the classical symphonic orchestra in a way that is so incredibly genius and uh, effective and unique in its own right can you talk about some of your impressions maybe not just growing up but looking back on how he created that music and how you're obviously you are the reason much of the reason that this music is being played today in 2020 at such a profuse level, which is incredible. Can you talk about that unique style that he created um, and any kind of um, thoughts or recollections you have around that?
1: Oh, yeah. I think if, if God sent my father here to do anything, he meant him to uh, to capitalize on the idea of a truly American music. And that's what African Americans gave to the country, was truly American music. Later on, people like Gunther Schuller said that white men invented jazz and uh, truly American music was white and not black, but it's not true. Uh, truly American music came out of William Grant Still in and, and Harlem long before the 20s, but it really came to its position in history in the 20s in Harlem. I absolutely agree that my father was the epitome of American music and uh, it gave it a form that everyone could appreciate and enjoy.
0: So one of the first, um, his first kind of major works was the Afro-American Symphony, the Symphony Number no. 1, uh, which was composed during the Great Depression. When the depression hit, your father went to work. One of the things that he was able to do is create a symphony based on the model from Europe with the Italian titles, Marato Asai, Adagio, Animato, Lento. But he also created a story to it, which is very similar. Like the more I I read about your father, it reminds me of Beethoven, (laughs) you know, because Beethoven had this, he used music for a social purpose, to bring equality, to stop war, to stop injustice. And so your father in the Afro-American Symphony also had the subtitles for the movements, Longing, Sorrow, Humor, Aspiration. This symphony also was taken to Germany in 1933 by Howard Hansen, It was played with the Berlin Philharmonic and was encored on multiple levels. Uh, I think uh, you know three or four times, which was almost unheard of at that time. Did your father ever talk about the construction of the Afro American Symphony and and that premiere not only in the United States but in Europe?
1: No, he didn't uh, really talk about uh, much about the development of certain pieces he probably was a successor to beethoven and what he accomplished because <clears throat> of course it's valuable to note that beethoven was mixed race there's a very wonderful uh yeah. sketch of him and it shows him to be very yeah. mixed race beethoven and my father had similar inclinations in putting Putting their inspirations to, to paper.
0: I've seen multiple examples of your father writing about how he believed music could cure racism. I know he has this these children's um, children's pieces uh, like the little song that wanted to be a symphony, the prince and the mermaid, where it was his. Goal to teach brotherhood through music. He said children learn from their elders to hate and discriminate. How did this develop throughout his life? I mean, he probably lived from 1895 to seven, 1978 uh, through s- some of the most turbulent times to be a Black American. Did this belief that his music, that art could bring people together ultimately, and did that evolve in any way throughout his life, as far as you know?
1: I think he was absolutely right. You know, when we first, we had to make the first all still recordings and send copies to all the radio stations because, you know, the major record companies wouldn't help us. Uh, When my father died, he had only had 15 performance, tiny performances of his music in the year. So he was unknown and uh, no one would help us. Publishers wouldn't help us. Record companies wouldn't help us. So I mortgaged everything, the kids, the furniture, the dogs, and made the first all-still recordings. And then when radio stations would play the music, people would call in and say, Who is that composer? Where can I get that music? They didn't know what color he was. Now, maybe when they found out what color he was, they regretted what they had done. But the music itself recommended Uh, a relationship with them. So I think my father hit the nail on the head. The music built bridges. Why else would the State Department and the the newspapers and the general uh, uh, governmental population try to destroy my father's first opera performance? It was because they knew that if the greatest American opera was by a person of color. The dynamic of, of racial separation would change.
0: Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that you, that opera you're referring to, I think, is Troubled Island. Can you? Right. So, so this was one of the this was one of the first. William Grant Still was the first black composer to conduct the L.A. Philharmonic, the first black conductor of an all white orchestra in New York um and and the premiere of this opera in 1949 with New York City Opera that was the first uh, opera to be performed by a black composer which which is one of the reasons uh that I think your father has the has the distinction of the dean of African American composers um can you talk about some of the challenges in 1949 of that premiere of troubled island
1: Oh yeah well it was just fraught with opposition uh it, it was uh, unseen opposition. And it became clear when, after the first, uh, the premiere performance, there were 26 curtain calls. People were wild about it. It was just a great success. But all of the newspapers panned the opera. And they said similar things about it that it was, uh, naive and, and the composer should go to, to Tin Pan Alley and write his music and, you know, similar things were said about it. And the so City Center closed down the opera after only three performances. It broke my father's heart, actually. He was never the same after that. What actually happened, and another newspaper reporter told my father this, that the night before opening night, they had a meeting in a hotel room led by Leonard Bernstein. And the, uh, and the critics were there who had come in to see the opera were there, and they were encouraged to pan the opera because they could not have a black composer with a success. He changed the end of the opera to make a statement about human nature and uh, about human relations. And then he wrote his finest opera, Costasso, right after that. Gorgeous opera, Afro-Spanish music. And it has, Costasso has never been done.
0: Is there, and and I've been trying to find some recordings of Troubled Island, too. It seems um, it has been recorded. So is the... Is the music available? Is that something that people could perform today?
1: Oh yeah, uh, actually, uh, the Black Opera Company in London, the Black Swan, the Black Swan, is going is planning to do Troubled Island for its second second its European premiere, second world premiere in September of this year. Uh, now, that may change because of the coronavirus. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but they they have the option to do that. Uh, so we're hoping... Uh, the opera was never done after 1949, and to this date, it has still not been done again.
0: Well, one of the things um, I think that you can take a lot of credit for is I'm seeing orchestras are... Starting to incorporate the works of people who have been underrepresented in the past, whether they be African-American composers, female composers, Latino composers, more into the repertoire. So we're not just playing, uh, you know, African-American composers in February. It's becoming uh, part of the mainstream orchestral repertoire. And I think uh, your father's music uh, deserves this as much as anyone else's. Um, you know, obviously there's the symphony number one, but there's also these, you know, he's got four, uh, you know, Song of a New Race, a Sunday Symphony, Western Hemisphere, all these incredible um, symphonies that that are this unique voice. Like you hear Brahms and you hear Schumann and you know exactly who that composer is and it takes you immediately into this other world. William Grant still has his own symphonic language that clearly t- deserves to be in the symphonic repertoire. Can you Can you talk about... Um, because I know that's changed over the past just ten years, um, and I know you're you probably need a whole factory of people supporting you to 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 just get all this music out. Um, can you talk about you know your role in that process?
1: Oh well, I don't like to talk about myself because I you know I'm doing this for them, and no one else was going to do it, and uh, we had such a gold mine of music. This year, it's been 40 years since I uh, set up the company, uh, William Grant Still Music, under my purview. Ah. And so I feel like I've been through the desert with the Jews. Finally, we're reaching a place where we feel that people are hearing and understanding what we are trying to accomplish.
0: What are some of the pieces that haven't been played that you really feel need to be promoted at this time?
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many. I'd have to really sit down and make a list. But uh, usually uh, I like to talk about the operas because there are several operas that are so worth doing. And uh, the heartache is that opera companies do Porgy and Bess, which is demeaning. Mm. And a lot of stolen William Grant Still music in Porgy, and instead of doing William Grant Still. But this is my main goal is to get the operas done because that's where my father's heart was. And uh, we are going to have some good fortune this year because Grace City Opera is going to do Manette Fontaine, which is an opera about Marie Laveau of New Orleans. Wonderful opera oh, cool. and uh uh, uh the, the other opera company in New Orleans is going to do Bayou legends, so we'll have three operas going on and uh, uh hoping for success the 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 virus is getting in the way, but we'll see whether whether we get through that and uh go back to. Uh, getting the operas uh mounted for the public
0: you mentioned george gershwin as somebody who has recently conducted uh the the symphony number no. 1 um there's a there's a great well it's all, it's a, it's all such a fantastic symphony but in in the third movement in humor william grant still gives us this melody and It's almost exactly like the I Got Rhythm of Gershwin. It's my understanding that in around 1930 or maybe a little bit before, um, William Grant still was uh, colleagues with Gershwin and Will was, was improvising at the piano and he happened to play this melody for I Got Rhythm and that's where Gershwin found it.
1: It started in the early twenties with Shuffle Along. Shuffle Along was the first great stage play in Harlem, and Gershwin was in the audience. And my father was improvising. I got rhythm, so Gershwin took it. And uh, at the same time in '26, my father had. There's a sketchbook where he sketched out the third movement of the Afro-American Symphony with I Got Rhythm in it. Well, in later years, Gershwin came. Everywhere my father was playing, there was Gershwin taking down the music. In 1926, when my father's Levee Land was played in concert in New York, Gershwin is in the front row taking down part of it, and part of it's in Porgy and Bess.
0: At one time, you called for a, a boycott of George Gershwin's music.
1: Oh, eternally. Yeah, but you see, Gershwin didn't only steal from my father. He stole from W.C. Handy and James Johnson and any black guy who was successful in, in Harlem, uh-huh. he was there every night with his girlfriend taking down the music. But it's true that a lot of white musicians and writers and people in the arts went into Harlem because that's where the excitement was. That was where the, uh, uh deep from the ground music was coming and, uh, they would take things down, and a black person couldn't object. Who was he going to object to? If he did object, uh, the adverse forces would have him hanging from a lamppost the next day. So the Negroes just had to put up with being stolen from him. My father knew he's, knew that Gershwin was stealing from him, but there was nothing he could do about it.
0: Did he ever talk about George Gershwin?
1: Oh, yes. And he told my mother all of that. She was angry and started writing articles. But there was no receptivity for her claim that Gershwin had stolen from black people in the days of, you know, segregation and all of that. So she didn't get anywhere telling, trying to tell the public about Gershwin. Prejudice was in the way. A person of color succeeding in classical music. Uh, we still had. No black operas that were important in, in, on the operatic stage. And although the Afro-American Symphony was all, almost done, the rest of the music was not well represented. So I wondered whether anything I could do was going to succeed. And w- when people would just hear a little bit of the music, if they were really a music lover, they became very interested and tried to get more. So it was uh, like climbing a ladder, a very tall ladder.
0: When I recently performed the Afro-American Symphony, directly after the performance, um, actually a few people came up to me. um, But I remember one woman who was in tears who said, I can't believe I didn't know this music. Thank you for opening me up to this music. I feel as artists and bringing people together through not only your father's music, but everything that an orchestra does and that creative process that makes people feel like we are one, uh, like your father talked about, like Beethoven talked about, this idea of brotherhood um, that persists despite all odds, that is kind of like the connective glue that holds us all together as, as, as one people on planet Earth. You know, there's always this push and pull, and it seems, I think I think Obama was quoting somebody when he said, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. What role do you feel music and an orchestra plays in, in that push and pull?
1: Oh, I think music is the only thing that reaches into the inner part of the person, into the mind and emotions. You can talk along, you can give a lot of political speeches to a person but when you reach into their emotions and their sense sense of justice uh, through music and it does you know the vibrations of music organized sound uh, just as a roiling river will upset you a quiet stream will calm you down and and put you at peace and that's what music does it, it organizes your emotions and uh uh tells you what is what is just what is right what is love and it it does it in a way that words cannot
0: like beethoven said 10 or 20 or 30 years from now after writing his ninth symphony we're not going to come together but probably 200 or 250 years from now it will happen so it's kind of like your father and it's it's this sacrifice you know being at the certain place and time in history knowing that the appreciation the recognition the societal response to their art is probably they're probably not going to see it you know that is something oh, that i feel is truly remarkable and uh, astounding in terms of just kind of sacrificing your your body for the spirit.
1: Absolutely. And you know what? We should have reached this point before because in the year 2000, DNA science announced that every human being on the planet is a descendant of a black couple in Africa. That should have immediately mm-hmm. told the world that bigotry is a load of cods, but it didn't mm-hmm. people go on with uh, we shall not replace these people will not replace us as et cetera, etc cetera. and and uh, they it it's they're belatedly going to discover in other ways I suppose that the DNA science was correct
0: so science has proven what artists have been telling us. <laughs> for <laughs> centuries um well I know. um if, if 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 i can be in a small part um just a contributor of um bringing your father's works um to the rest of the world and making the world a, a better place you know a more loving and caring and unified place um i'm just honored to be a part of that and Judith, I just wanted to thank you again um, for your time and your commitment to that same mission um, and I'm looking forward to a lot of the music of William Grant still in the future
1: Well, I appreciate that I, I I'm honored to be asked to speak with you and i'm I'm so happy that that you are doing this and have done the music and and are playing a big part in the a realization of human understanding.